Well, 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 welcome back to Powernomics as we continue the National Plan to Empower Black America. We're still in Chapter 1 entitled Racism, Monopolies, and Inappropriate Behavior. So today we are going to pick up on our monopolized society. Let's begin. Racism in America has gone through a number of mutations. Though always retaining its inequalities, it is now practically impossible for members of our society to see and prove racism against black people. It is now hidden behind a suedo algaritarian smoke screen. Social conservatives and the power elite praised Martin Luther King Jr. Picked up the rhetoric of the black civil rights movement, but distorted the fundamental intent of the movement. They proclaimed that racial inequality no longer existed and all groups were starting out even. Thus, they created an illusion, just like the drunk who took his pet alligator into a bar, cut off its tail, painted it yellow, and called it a dog. Social conservatives and the power elite are taking racism through similar false transformations. However, no matter how it is camouflaged, racism is still right before your eyes. Old-fashioned racism has gone legitimate again, masquerading with all the rights and privileges of approved monopolies. The word monopoly emanates from the word monarch. According to Charles Argus, the author of Monopolies in America, the, tra the tradition of monopolies was inherited from English common law. The British Crown granted patent letters to merchants, giving them exclusive rights to provide certain goods or services. Any monopoly conveys the ultimate source of power, wealth, and control to a person, group, or business. When a business entity has a monopoly, it dominates and controls nearly all aspects of an industry and can use its massive power to raise barriers to control markets and bankrupt competitors. A racial monopoly like any other monopoly is defined by its origin and the power it has over its competitors on its way to becoming the essence of various white monopolies, racism has passed through three monopolistic stages. The first stage is a natural monopoly that protects things that are strategically vital to the government itself. In race matters, whiteness and all of its ramifications was always strategically vital and invaluable, entitling its bearer to wealth, privileges, authority, power, and certain in, uh, and, excuse me, inalienable rights. 
the United States Constitution codified whiteness as a national asset. Various state and local governments passed anti-miscongenation laws and defined whiteness and protected it from race mixing. The second is a collusive monopoly. This monopoly exists when members of a tightly knit group of public agencies or private corporations enter into specific agreements to control the marketplace or the wealth, power, and resources of a society over their common competitor. In race matters, it is a, con a collusive monopoly when this nation continuously expands the definition of whiteness to include a hierarchy of ethnic groups. Today it includes a succession of immigrants from Europe, the Middle East, Spanish-speaking countries, and Asia. All of these groups are unified as members of the Caucasian race with the exception of blacks and Asians. And according to Andrew Hacker, Asians are on probation to be classified as white. Immigration laws are examples of specific agreements that control marketplace, wealth and power. These laws establish new priorities for admissions, country of origin, family members who are already here, possession of needed skills, and the financial ability to purchase entry. This criteria is biased toward immigrants with skin color that is more acceptable than black. The third stage is a shared monopoly. This is a popular term used in the business world today. A shared monopoly is a composite of collusive and natural monopoly. It reaches its maximum effectiveness when members of a group work together to control or divide competition out of the marketplace. Small, small businesses have federal antitrust laws to protect them from the power of large corporate monopolies. But there are no constitutional or government provisions that prevent the white society and its feeder immigrant groups from shutting blacks out of political and economic marketplaces. A Brief History of Monopoly Building in America, Stand By. Over the course of this nation's history, there have been at least three major phases of monopoly building for wealth and power. The first monopoly building phase in American history occurred during the, during the colonization of America when Europeans in general and the English in particular formed and held natural monopolies in land ownership, slave trading, and slave-supported industries. England exerted the power of its newly found slavery-based wealth by instituting the Navigation Act in the 1760s and other laws and tariffs that mandated that American colonist ships their slave-produced raw products and goods to England for processing, 
manufacturing, and marketing. The colonists then had to purchase back the finished products at higher and inflated prices. This system effectively allowed England to exercise full economic and political control and to economically exploit its colonies as well as other nations. England became the king of slave trading and held a natural monopoly on constructing slave-based economies. The English crown established the first franchising system that built plantations, financed the slaveholders, supplied the slaves in ships, and processed the slave produce goods. It took a full century for the American colonists to recognize that they were locked into an English monopoly. Once the reality set in, they began calling those monopolies tyranny. The American colonies rejected England's plans to exportion the fruits of slave labor and to control the politics of the colonies. The colonists knew from the English history of serfdom that any system that politically subordinates, economically exploits, and socially dominates a group of people is tyrannically is tyrannical because it reduces them to slaves. The colonists did not want to be England's serfs. They preferred to fight, and when they did, they ignited and fought the Revolutionary War for their independence. The second phase of monopoly building began shortly after the Revolutionary War. The American colonists immediately drafted the United States Constitution which imposed on black people the same government-sponsored tyranny that the colonists rejected under the English rule. The founding fathers of this nation, most of whom were slaveholders and sympathetic to other slaveholders, drafted and ratified the United States Constitution. That document gave the colonial slaveholders a collusive monopoly, the same monopolistic controls that England had over the colonists before the war. Just as slave labor had made England wealthy, it swallowed southern slaveholders to operate in their own best interests rather than the best interests of northern whites or enslaved blacks. The North eventually concluded that it could not acquire competitive wealth and political power until it broke the South's monopoly on black labor. In 1861, the Civil War broke out between the North and the South over wealth and political power. The third phase of the monopoly building occurred 
after the North won the Civil War. The war effectively destroyed legalized slavery and transferred the South's monopolies on wealth and political power to the North. The North focused its newly acquired wealth and power on industrializing the North and the West. The massive amounts of money previously invested in the slavery industry and Civil War military production was used to build bridges, canals, railroads, ships, and factories. However, in achieving the political and economic defeat of the South, the North had ignored the five million ex-slaves. Major political organizations in the North went on record opposing emancipation of enslaved blacks unless they were shipped out of the country in order that they not compete against white men's labor. Steven Steinberg wrote, the North abandoned black ex-slaves. The South got the message and com commandeered blacks into semi-slavery while the North looked the other way. According to a memorandum of proceedings in the United States Senate, the North states by their situation and climate require black labor and must have it or the states will cease to have any value. The southern states enacted black codes that again gave them a shared monopoly control on land, economic systems, governments, education systems, and black labor for another 100 years. Both the North and the South used various levels of government to create white-only business and political, intellectual, and social monopolies. These advantages of property, technology, political participation, and major business opportunities were passed on to succeeding generations of white males. Racial Monopolies in America, stand by. Racial monopolies predetermine winners and losers and are considered a normal part of our political, economic structure. Through these monopolies, white society maintains a lock on the essential elements of black people's lives and makes black people spectators in the democratic process. The racial monopolies discussed below are but a few of the nearly invisible structures that marginalize and justify black America's position as this nation's permanent minority loser. The first one, monopolies established in the Constitution. As indicated earlier, the United States Constitution is not and has never been colorblind. It is race specific and color conscious. For all intents and purposes, the Constitution remains unchanged. The Founding Fathers were the first ones to play the race card. In fact, they were the original 
car dealers. They allocated rights, resources, and power to the majority white society. America essentially has two constitutions, one for whites and one for blacks. Constitutional amendments one through 12 are race specific and empower the majority white society. The 13th through 15th amendments were also color specific. They gave citizenship and empowerment rights to black ex-slaves. The 13th Amendment eliminated legal slavery. The 14th Amendment gave blacks equal protection and due process rights. The 15th Amendment extended voting and other social rights to blacks. Majority society has co-opted these amendments. During Reconstruction in the 1860s, major social and economic forces began to make these amendments colorblind, even though they were originally specific to blacks. The term colorblind is not formally used until 1896, when Chief Justice John M. Harlan of the Supreme Court issued a dissenting opinion in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. The Supreme Court held that there was nothing wrong with separate but equal accommodations for blacks and whites as a public policy. But, Justice Harlan said, the Constitution was colorblind. He was the first to say it, but he was wrong. The Constitution is and always has been color specific. The color consciousness of the Constitution was no accident. The Constitution codified the racial inequalities that existed intentionally in our society. James Madison, a major author of the Constitution and a slaveholder, knew he was not including black people when he spoke of how the country would always be divided between those who held property and those who were themselves property. When he spoke of owning property, he meant items such as household furnishing, livestock, and land. He also clearly included ownership of slaves. When the Constitution was finally ratified in 1789, however, it used broad, ambiguous, and inoffensive public relations type words such as all and everyone rather than to refer directly to black slaves. Still, it established a system in which the racial group defined as white, could hold monopolies of wealth and political power over the subordinate black group that was classified as personal property and only three-fifths of a human. The Constitution also included an affirmative action provision for the South that eventually led 
to a civil war between the North and the South. The Constitution made white Southerners a protected minority with the privilege of holding a monopoly on slavery. More specifically, provisions in the U.S. Constitution gave the Southern minority political rights, preferential treatment in the Fugitive Slave Act, favorable quotes on the export and import of slave-related products, and set aside advantages on elected representation in Congress. This reverent document declared freedom and justice for everyone but blacks, while giving special status, privileges, and rights to the South. The Constitution continues to be used as the bias to deny preferences, affirmative action, and reparations for black Americans. Citizenship and the benefits of whiteness were constitutionally denied to blacks. Ironically, like blacks, Indians were also specifically identified in the Constitution, but they were excluded from official abuse because they were categorized as free inhabitants and encouraged to assimilate into white society. By the end of the 19th century, American Indians had the option to leave the reservations or remain protected inward, protected wards of the government. Yet, throughout their relationship, white leaders and various institutions have recognized Indians as an acceptable extension of white society that ranked higher in the biological order than blacks. When the U.S. Constitution was modified in the 1860s through the addition of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Black Constitution, after numerous rewrites of the final language, contained ambiguous words such as all persons, any person, and everyone, although it was commonly understood that the constitutional amendments were for black ex-slaves. The initial congressional enabling language hinted that these civil rights laws bound the U.S. Congress to take care of black ex-slaves until they could take care of themselves. To this day, however, Congress has never abided by their own laws in this regard, and members have sat by silently while the dominant society has boldly undermined the economic rights awarded to black people. They allowed the majority white society to co-opt the black constitution and promote the myth that the United States Constitution was colorblind. The Constitution was conceived as a social economic covenant for those who already had power, wealth, and nearly unlimited rights. To be a truly democratic society, 
this nation would have to redistribute and share some of its wealth and power with black America. The black constitution was passed following the Civil War because the efforts of a small group of radical, liberal, Republican congressmen who succeeded in amending the Constitution by including color-specific amendments for blacks. These amendments gave blacks a minimum level of rights that certain congressmen hoped would offset some of the tyranny of the white majority society. The second one, population monopolies. One of the first acts of the U.S. Congress following the ratification of the Constitution was the enactment of this nation's first naturalization and immigration law in 1790. This law declared America to be a white nation and set a zero quota on black immigrants except as slaves. A quota of approximately zero remained in effect until 1965 when it was increased to its current level of one half of one percent. Throughout most of this nation's history, Peoples of African descent have been nearly shut out of the immigration and refugee programs of the United States. Blacks have competed in this nation's majority wins, population gain almost exclusively from birth rates rather than immigration. Though they could never win as a national majority, they also have never won as a local majority. The black civil rights movement's quest for integration ensured that blacks would always be a minority population in white schools, businesses, jobs, communities, or entertainment centers. The census is conducted every decade and establishes the official population count of the country. Efforts to create a multicultural category in the 2000 census will most likely dilute and in reality distort downward the number of blacks in America. Dilution of population numbers assures that blacks will lose status as the numerical majority minority. Government efforts to change racial definitions will retain the white population majority monopoly, quote unquote, and inflate the numbers of Hispanics in the population. In this book, Uprooting Racism, Paul Kibble says whiteness is a many faceted phenomenon, slowly and constantly shifting its emphasis all the time maintaining a racial hierarchy and protecting the power that accrues to white people. Although there are no natural or essential qualities or characteristics of whiteness or of white people, it is not an easy fiction to let go of. By constantly enlarging the ethnic boundaries of whiteness, quote unquote, all Europeans, 
Middle Easterners, Hispanics, and soon Asians. Whites separate people who are entitled to privileges and wealth from people who are exploited and violated. In a group-based society, constant efforts to enlarge the majority white population ensure that a shared racial population monopoly will continue to exist far into the future. The 2000 census form offers blacks 54 subcategories to opt out of their race and further and further atomize their population numbers. The census will not dilute whiteness. On the contrary, it further expands the definition of whiteness. Let's look at how a shared white monopoly impacts black America's life chances. Whites are a planned majority. Blacks, on the other hand, are a planned permanent minority. Limited by immigration policies, blacks are only 12.4% of the general population. They are outnumbered seven to one by a shared white majority that is 87% of the population. This means that whites can override blacks at least seven times making it impossible for blacks to take over anything. Moreover, with the exception of entertainment, blacks do not exceed 1% of ownership, control, or representation of anything positive in American society. In critical skill professions such as doctors, lawyers, architects, engineers, scientists, judges, physicists, business owners, wealth holders, and elective officials, blacks never exceed one half of one percent. In every black professional, if every black professional was hired in public sector or private sector jobs, whites would still hold approximately 99.5 percent of the professional positions. If all of the 36 million black people in the entire country were employed, the educated, the uneducated, senior citizens, those in prison, children, infants, teenagers, their total numbers could never exceed 12% of the workforce. When blacks try to even marginally increase their percentage in the workforce, whites are threatened and initiate a backlash. The third one, wealth monopolies. Slavery and Jim Crow, semi-slavery did not just make whites a little bit richer than blacks. Whites are vastly richer. They have deprived black people of nearly the whole economic pie. It is the proportion of the pie that a group owns that determines its access to functional schools, competitive business, equal justice, essential health care, personal comfort, and the length and quality of their lives. The nature of white wealth has cut blacks off from nearly all of these fundamentals of life. 
white society not only owns or controls most of the nation's wealth and power resources, but most of it is passed on from one generation of whites to the next. This is one reason why there is a lower proportion of whites who are poor compared to the number of poor blacks and why the children of affluent white parents are less likely than blacks to ever become poor. Wealth is frozen and stored inside the white race in its families, culture, businesses, churches, communities, education systems, and organizations in the form of stocks, bonds, land, insurance policies, trust accounts, and foundations. It is inconceivable that blacks could cross racial boundaries and successfully displace these frozen forms of wealth. As indicated in table one below, whites own nearly 100% of all corporate bonds and stocks, which amounts to approximately $13 trillion. In 1986, the 256th largest company of the Fortune 500, a white corporation, had sales equal to the $16 billion total combined sales of the nation's 100 largest black-owned businesses as listed in the August 2000 edition of Black Enterprise Magazine. While the wealth gap continues to widen between blacks and whites, the number of millionaires and billionaires increase. During the 1980s, for example, the number of millionaires and billionaires increased by 300 and 500 percent respectively. Although a handful of black entertainers and sports figures are included in the millionaire category, their standing is most often a result of increased income, which is not the same as increased wealth. Moreover, none of the wealthiest black entertainers and athletes appear on the Forbes list of the wealthiest 500. Obtaining wealth equality in America is a rigid game, a rigged game. There is no equal opportunity to gain wealth. Such opportunities typically depend on four factors. Inborn capacity, cultural and educational opportunities, ownership and control of resources, the power of racism. In summary, this means a white person of normal talents who lives in an enriched culture with parents who can afford the best has an excellent chance to become rich and live well. Economic Darwinism tracks both parental and racial bloodlines. Structural racism enables whites to acquire wealth, while capital gains and inheritance laws ensure they will keep and control wealth. Steve Brower stated in his book, Sharing the Pie, that in 1996, Charles Dorrance of the Campbell Soup family inherited a great deal of wealth 
he traded in 9 million shares of company stock and earned $740 million. Warren Buffett, a Wall Street investor, profited $10.6 billion over a period of 24 months for a total fortune of $21 billion. In comparison, nearly 50% of black America has a net worth approaching zero because its debts negate any property or assets they can pass on to their offspring. The white economic stronghold on essential empowerment resources is also reflected in business ownership and management, which is nearly 100% white and mostly male. When white economic monopolies open up, white females get in the door first, followed by those ethnic minorities classified as white. As Brown writes, white men are in no danger of losing or even sharing control of management over the nation's top 500 corporations for at least 25 years. America's top 104 corporations have an average of one black in senior positions. The fourth one, media monopolies. Commercial media create a virtual reality of our society. Not only are the owners of media responsible for the information that we see and hear, but they create images of blacks and define us and our sense of community. This is troublesome for blacks because whites hold ownership monopolies over this nation's print and electronic media. Media ownership is a source of control over power, wealth, and information. Media power is political power. Whites control nearly 100% of this nation's 1,500 daily newspapers, 11,000 radio stations, 11,800 cable systems, 1,500 television stations, and the major internet businesses. These monopolies ensure that blacks will never have an effective mass communication system for their own. It means that blacks will always have to ask permission to use white-owned mass communication vehicles to reach out to other blacks or discuss sensitive racial issues. Members of the public who, des who deserve to be exposed to the perspective of blacks are deprived of that information and do not have access to that type of unfiltered programming. White society constructs monopolies inside of monopolies. Clear channel communications provides a good example of media ownership as an important racial monopoly that is also a major source of wealth and power. According to the company's 1999 annual report, it owns 900 radio stations, 19 television stations, and 700,000 outdoor advertising units in the United States. It has equity interests in 240 radio stations internationally, 
The company's gross, gross revenue in 1999 was $3 billion, which was up 97% from 1998. White media protects white interests. Without wealth to own media outlets, blacks will always be in the position of complaining about the images others present of them. But they will never have sufficient means to change or fashion appropriate images of themselves. In 1999, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, led a complaint and threatened to boycott against all the networks for a television season that lacked minority characters in the program lineup. The network owners did not forget that blacks existed. They chose not to include them. In matters like this, blacks negotiated from a position of weakness because they own no networks and few television stations. In the case of the complaint, the NAACP would have come closer to addressing a core black problem if it had challenged the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and the executive branch of government to demand greater black ownership of television outlets. Without ownership, blacks are unable to communicate with their own people without passing through and having the approval of non-black media owners. And since black issues tend to make whites feel guilty or threatened, white media only give blacks access to their media when the issues are race neutral or relevant to the majority society. Even when blacks own media, they have impediments to, program, to programming and economic success. The few broadcasts and print properties that are black owned are so dependent upon white advertisers for revenue that programming from a black perspective is often muted to avoid disapproval as too black. Anything that is all black is too black. There are not enough black advertisers to support black media companies, which are an afterthought with white advertisers. If they do elect to purchase advertising from black owned media outlets, it will be safe programming. They avoid supporting black media when it reflects racial controversy. No other group has such social prohibitions. Nearly 99% of all white Americans live in all white communities, work in all white offices, conduct business with white customers, and send their children to all white schools. White print and broadcast media outlets target nearly 100% white audiences but they are not criticized for being too white. Even national political parties spend less with black media than they spend to reach other groups, according to the May 18 through May 24, 2000 issues of the Challenger magazine. The Republican National Committee indicated 
it would spend $10 million in advertising with Hispanic media and $0 with black media in its 2000 presidential campaign. As late as two months before the polls opened, unofficial reports indicated that the National Democratic Party had yet to commit money to black media. White media monopolies go unchallenged regardless of how frequently and unjustly black people are treated. The control of images we see by media and the corporations who buy advertising was demonstrated in Detroit, Michigan at the premier showing of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. The hidden story in spring 2000. The movie produced for home box office tells the story of the 1921 racial assault that claimed the lives of approximately 600 blacks. Their homes and businesses were robbed, bombed, and burned by whites who admitted in the program that they were jealous of black people's economic success. Although this film is a poignant and important historical documentary, white businesses in the Detroit area refused to financially support its airing on the Wayne State University campus. Government resources have always been used to develop and maintain majority monopolies. Government policies allow media and communication monopolies such as the telephone and broadcast industries. The internet developed largely with government funds is now owned by private companies and is becoming another white-owned media monopoly. All right, we're going to stop here and we'll be moving into the fifth monopoly. Ah, no, let's keep going for this last one, political and judicial monopolies. The nation's political and judicial systems are racial monopolies that form the superstructure of society. Those monopolies make nearly every political and legal issue about race a foregone conclusion. Politics and the court system tend to be more anti-black than the larger society legal justice. Legal justice has come to mean ensuring that blacks do not break the law while forcing them to cheerfully submit to whites breaking the law. Though their population monopolizes, monopolies ensure that whites will always dominate and rule, racism within the political and legal systems guarantee blacks will rarely win. Thurgood Marshall by his acts and omissions was probably the only U.S. Supreme Court justice prejudiced in favor of black people. However, outnumbered eight to one, his legal opinions had little real impact on race rulings. Conversely, Marshall's replacement on the U.S. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, seems most concerned about his acceptance by white society. In fairness to Clarence Thomas, even if he were to begin acting as a responsible black man, his vote would not change the way the U.S. Supreme Court works and rules. He, too, 
is outnumbered. Several justices were appointed when there were two litmus tests for any appointment to the Supreme Court. Credible conservative views and willingness to avoid using the court to correct historical injustices, especially those committed against blacks. Michael Lynn, in his book, Up From Conservatism, shares a story that illustrates how bias against blacks is institutionalized in the judicial monopoly. Lynn says, William Rehnquist, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was ordered away from a polling place in Arizona in the 1950s because he was demanding that black voters be forced to prove they could read by reading the Constitution before being allowed to mark their ballots. Rehnquist passed the litmus test of President Reagan, who appointed him, along with his racial attitudes, Chief Justice of the highest court in the nation. In this position, his racial bias could infect court decisions throughout the nation. Any counter bias for blacks was nullified with Thomas appointed as the U.S. Supreme Court. Consequently, judicial monopolies control the fate of blacks in ways that are rarely beneficial. Research supports this premise. As late as the 1990s, nearly 60% of whites, Hispanics, and Asian Americans continue to perceive black people as inferior, undeserving of justice, and innately criminal. Justice for blacks in a system that reflects such bias and indifference is virtually impossible. Whites maintain a monopoly on holding political office whether blacks vote or not. For example, increases in black voter registration and participation resulted in a 9,000% increase in the number of black elected officials within the last two generations. Yet, black police office holders still represent less than 1% of this nation's elected officials. The political and judicial system are cornerstone institutes that whites monopolize even as most people espouse belief in the colorblind myth. A monopoly on the elective and appointment process of public office will continue to place white males in control of 99% of all levels of government and legal systems. Whites in possession of power and authority have been conditioned by their experiences in American society to protect the status quo and the advantages of their own group's self-interest. They instinctively reflect the mores of structural racism in the normal course of behaving. The majority of whites who hold high positions in the political and judicial systems are descendants of white immigrants who entered this nation centuries after the ancestors of black Americans. Though their ancestors were not in this country when blacks were enslaved and segregated, special admission status reserved seats of power for them in the judicial and political systems. The nation's fundamental democratic values of inalienable inalienable rights and principles of fair play have yet to apply fully to blacks. 
there is no credible evidence that whites understand the true nature of racism and its monopolies or are concerned about the negative impact of them on the life chances of blacks. Whiteness as a monopoly is a subconscious construct that promotes aversion to any form of blackness, especially within the political legal system. Whites tend to equate blackness to liberalism, which has the effect of moving all the nation's political parties to racial selfishness. They stack the law enforcement and court systems with conservative officers and judges who are predisposed to anti-black feelings. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which was enacted solely for the equal protection of blacks, is co-opted and used by the political system to maintain white dominance. By the virtue of black people's inherited disadvantages and whites inherited life advantages, the races are locked into conflict and competition. These racial conflicts and the accompanying racial disparities cannot be eliminated by indifference or black leaders' accommodations. When black leaders accommodate and compromise, they lose respect and the black masses move no closer to the corridors of power and wealth. Moreover, whites find it easier to pacify blacks with symbolic rather than substantive political benefits and opportunities. This only further reinforces racial inequalities. All right. Well, that concludes today's reading. Again, we are still in chapter one of Powernomics, the National Plan to Empower, Empower Black Americans by Dr. Claude Anderson. So next week, when we continue, we will continue chapter one of racism, monopolies, and inappropriate behavior. And we will pick up on the implications of monopolies. Again, thank you for listening to Health Talk Today.